Hello and welcome to Setting the Stage, episode 17, Garrett and Piram. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to remind people that we're still looking for more people to interview. So if you're a DM or you know a DM that might be interested in coming on the show, you can check out more about how to apply at www.gocorral.com STS. And without any further ado, let's get into the show. Today I'm talking with Garrett. Um, so before we get into talking about D&D and your campaign, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about who you are outside of the game. Yeah, so uh, my name is Garrett. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I am a dungeon master and uh, an English bachelor. That's part of the reason why I have always been attracted to writing and storytelling and stuff like that. And so about six years ago, when a buddy of mine introduced me to, first it was Pathfinder, and then immediately <laughs> after Dungeons and Dragons, uh, I was just like hooked immediately after that. Was that first edition Pathfinder or second? Oh, yeah. We played uh, about, what, two games of the first edition Pathfinder, which I know everyone uh, talks smack about, but I, I liked it enough to uh, keep playing. Yeah. Uh, but I haven't tried the second edition yet, even though I've heard good things. Yeah, I, I like the first edition of it, but mm-hmm. uh, by the time I switched over it, I'd been doing 3.5 for a long time, and I was kind of tired of that complexity. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, second edition has, I would say, just as much complexity, but it's more, um, it's more modular because it's all based in feats instead of like class selections. Nice. No, yeah, I've got a couple of friends who run a second edition Pathfinder table, and they've been loving it. Okay, cool. Um, how did so? That's how you got into, not exactly D and D, but through right, Pathfinder, right? The, the world, and, and then yeah, yeah from role playing games. From there, um, it was actually, you know, as always, a group of my work buddies, uh, because we were all working at Starbucks at the time, that Uh uh, I started with a table of three, uh, and by the end of the year, I had a table of eight, uh, and we kept that table going for about five years. Wow. Yeah, that's a... That's a big group. (laughs) Yeah, uh, I would never do it again, and I told them that. Uh, funny enough, the Pyram game, which is the one I want to talk with y'all about tonight, is um, like my last game we played at that table. And I told them straight out, I'm like, this is, after this one, I'm done. Uh, because at, this was our fourth game. Uh, we had started and finished three other games over the course of those five years. Mm-hmm. Did you ever consider doing like a co-DM to make the dealing with that bigger group easier? I thought about it. Uh, part of part of the problem was it was the forever DM situation where the whole table was brand new except for me. Like I mm-hmm. was their introduction to D and D. So there did come a point in the later years where uh, there was definitely like weekend moonlighting where I was starting to try to get them all into DMing too, so I could take the load off. Right. My group started getting interested in DMing like when we'd been playing for three years, so it's a bit surprising that out of eight players, none of them would be interested after, you said, five years? Yeah, right. Uh, one of them does did go on to be a DM, actually. Uh, we actually we had to move, which was part of the reason the game uh, ended up uh, finishing early. Mm-hmm. But uh, one of my players is a DM in his own games now, so he gets to come back and tell me about all his stories with his friends. Um, and there oh, are a couple great. others who have done, like, they've done one-shots before and stuff like that. Uh, actually, oh no, two of my players now are DMs, because I'm, one of my players is now my DM in a different game. 
Oh, okay, cool. All right, so you are still playing with well, at least part of the group. Yeah, exactly. With eight, there's a there's a lot of variants, but we're all still uh, on great terms, and they all still are involved in D and D in some point. Okay. Um. So you filled out the survey back in October. Were you still like finishing up the the campaign you were DMing at that point, or had you already finished it up by then? Uh, we were still probably, I think, right in the thick of it. Uh, but this is one of those games that, like, I loved from the minute I thought it up, uh, and I knew it would be, like, perfect for a short form, because my plan with Pyram itself as the country, or as a, a location, was that in our previous three games, um, they had all been a little more, in a, like, a little more classic d and I want to say, and that, like, you know, adventurers from city to city, fighting monsters and defeating bad guys. Um, right. And I wanted to kind of challenge myself as a DM and say, how can I fit an entire campaign setting into one city? Uh, so they're going to complete from, like, first to, usually we play to, like, 15, uh, first to 15, all in one location. Wow. Yeah, that's that's a lot. Yeah, right? <laughs> so is, is Pyram based in the same campaign world as your previous campaigns, or is it entirely separate? So this one was the first deviation, actually. The three other games had been in, like, my previous D&D world, uh, which was the kingdom, or the country of Kaland. Uh, but this one, I wanted to basically go fresh, uh, totally blank slate on it. Partially because uh, once you play enough high-level D&D games in any world, I feel like things start getting a little messy, you know? <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Uh, so it, things had gotten a little ridiculous in there. Uh, so we needed a blank slate for them to mess up again. Yeah, I've um, yeah, I've kind of done that with my campaign world, where yeah, I'm gonna need to <laughs> take it down a notch for the next time I go back to it. Exactly. Um. All right. Yeah. Let's get into the setting. So, uh, what what is Pyram? Give us like a physical description of. I know it's not a world, but the the setting. Yeah, so uh, Pyram itself is kind of the way I described it is this like great oasis of like culture and uh, life in what is kind of this empty scrubland country of Xandis. Uh, Pyram itself started off as a small mining town. Uh, the mines specifically were of uh, this uh, mineral I made up, catalyte, which is an explosive when it's processed in specific ways. Uh, okay. So this small dwarven mining town was kind of barely eking out a living when already the mines were starting to go. Um, and that what, that's what kind of brought in the original lore uh, the background story for my world is we had uh, these four great heroes who had stopped a civil war and basically saved the country um, previously before my players start their game. And one of those warriors, Skana Greybreaker, had been uh, a villager in this little mining town. And while she was the most important person in stopping this civil war, she died because of it. So her three remaining friends came to her town and they blessed it. And those three uh, gifts were that, one, uh, the crops would always grow. Two, that uh, fresh water would always flow from the top of the hill where the town was. 
and three, that no one within the town's limits could die in combat. Um, and so this tiny little mining town overnight had been given these amazing magical gifts, and essentially as soon as the rest of the world found out about it, the rest of the world moved in to capitalize on it. Yes, I was thinking that this is definitely going to have some immigration coming in. Oh, yeah, because, uh, like, basically overnight, it because like, you know, uh, politics and economics and culture and all this stuff, especially because if you're a rich and powerful and influential person, a city where you literally cannot be murdered is, like, you know, number one property. Okay, so you said you can't die in combat. So yes. I you could potentially still poison someone with that count? Yes. Uh, so the way it works in this system is like uh, combat mechanics are a real thing. So the moment you like make a combat role, you enter combat, uh, then like the barrier goes up basically. But you can get sick, you can be old, uh, you can be poisoned. You could even potentially like if you stab someone hard enough to kill them instantly, like you could possibly do that. Uh, but it's in combat specifically. No one can die. Okay, so because the barrier goes up, like, at the first blow, that's why you can, like, cut off someone's head as an execution, and that works, mm -hmm. I guess? Exactly. Okay. Uh, All right. And another big thing that came about from this is in a world or in a city where nobody can die to violence, um, professional sports has gotten huge. Yes, I would imagine. Uh, that is probably, and it didn't even start out that way, but the arena, um, which is kind of the big fighting coliseum area, has sort of become my favorite spot in basically the whole world um, because it's run by a maniac. <laughs> okay, yeah, tell me about that. Yeah, so um, I, and I don't even know how it started, um, but his name is Frizz Chalark, and he is a Nilbog. Uh, and for those who aren't familiar, Nilbogs are horrifying little creatures. Uh, they are goblins that have been blessed by basically the spirit of Jest, um, and any DM, I encourage y'all just check in it's a he's in the monster manual check him out um it's horrifying <laughs> yeah uh yeah i remember that it's like a demon goblin or something i forget the exact yeah um and There's so many different types you, of goblins you just can't hurt him um any like if you try to hit him he's just got a magical ability where uh 90 of the time you bow down to him and apologize instead mm. <laughs> that's funny Oh, it's it's a great time. So he's in charge of all of the fighters. Um, and I like there's so many stories like it's, it's one of those things where um, he starts out with a necklace of fireball and then it goes from there. Uh, OK, so that's a NPC of yours, right? Yes. OK. And the. The four divines are those also NPCs? Is that I mean, four heroes kind of sounds like oh, this was an adventuring party from a previous adventure. Yes, the campaign. Uh, exactly, and that's kind of uh, the four divines, as they're called. Uh, they aren't physically in the game, but they become really important because the main antagonists of the story here are a cult that is actually devoted to them. 
So originally, uh, they are just an adventuring party, but this uh, new religious movement basically believes that with the power of their prayers, kind of like a cleric, um, they could be elevated into godhood. Okay. So th they're not actually a... Um, they weren't ever players, they were just a adventuring party. Yes. Uh, right. You could imagine, like, the, the level 20, like, the... DMPC that wanders off in the distance. They bless and then ascend it into the heavens. Okay, gotcha. uh, And these cultists believe that uh, their power, which was an amazing power, is uh, godly, so they give worship to it. Okay. Uh, the only thing is that um, because the way the, the city is currently set up, uh, there is what, like, is on day one, and then there's what the campaign becomes when the cult uh, inevitably tries to take over. Uh, ah, day okay. one, you've got the beautiful city of Piram. Uh, the way I've got it set up is there are basically three kind of major sections in the city. Uh, there is the top, which is known as Governor's Row, uh, these are, you know, the fine houses, the uh, noblemen, the individuals of note all live up there. Uh, so you they're... said top, is it built on top of a hill? That's where the, the original mining town was? Yes, exactly. It's right okay. up top of the hill. And the governor's estate um, and also kind of the central pool of water uh, all sit at the top of the hill. And there's a series of aquifers that move all throughout the city, uh, providing water to everyone and then further out into the farmlands, too. Uh, did you mean aqueducts? I think aquifers. Or, yeah, is aqueducts. Like yeah, aquifers. The the, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> all right. Um, so that's the. The top, and then it's like what's below that is like merchants, and then exactly. Slums. Yep, basically, it all comes downhill. Uh, and gotcha. the merchant district is like the the main sector where like two thirds of people live there. Um, and then kind of in between the two is uh, the little arts district, which of course had to be included. Uh, this one is uh, a couple of sections of housing that's kind of halfway between uh, the Governor's Row and the Merchant's District. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, culture and life in those areas, but uh, over the last few years, uh, more wealthy individuals have started kind of gentrify out the area. Um, and one right. of my players at the time was playing, like, the son of one of the landlords who's living in the apartment, like, doing art, quote-unquote. Uh, so it was of a course. great spot to kind of start them out. Okay, yeah. A little middle door is good. Mm -hmm. um, man, I've got so many questions. Um, uh, I guess going backwards. Uh, so the Civil War, um, it was... What was going on there? What started that, that um, the Four Divines... Yes. Uh, so the uh, it's known as the Violet Blight Siege. Um, basically, this is the uh, big war that was between it was ended up being between four uh, kind of major houses that were all vying for political power here. And the general conceit of like, you know, historians, everybody posthumously involved in this war is that it was almost like one of those like almost pointless, like, you know, useless power grab situations that became, like, an extremely bloody, protracted civil war in an area. Um, mm -hmm. And it's only thanks to these four uh, adventurers that 
peace was brought to the land, but at the exchange of Skana's life. Okay, so they're they're now turning into gods. Like, can you worship them and get spells from them, like a cleric, or? So that is uh, the belief and the original kind of frontward-facing view of the cult. Uh, the cult is the Order of the Four Divines, and the order has kind of grown in the city over the last year or so because they make all of these wild promises. Uh, but behind the scenes, um, they have actually uh, taken captive and are using the power of a devil. Uh, to kind of funnel their, to power their magical energies. Uh, oh, okay. So what they're so claiming is terrible is not. Yeah. Okay. And they believe, like, through the power of their devotion and through control of the city, that this kind of godliness will be attained. Okay, gotcha. Um, I had some more questions about the, the three blessings. Mm -hmm. So the the combat one, I was thinking of another thing there. Like, what if you push someone down a flight of stairs they hmm they probably they would probably be hurt they may not even i say maybe if they yeah they would probably because okay it's not a combat role uh so they would probably make like a deck save and if you you know if you break well i mean neck, it kind of is a combat neck, role you could classify that as a bull rush attack right good or maybe not stairs maybe if you push someone off like a you know a tall building and like right I'm not the one that killed them. It was the ground. <laughs> okay, maybe you don't have to. Have it would an probably for this. it would probably have to go situationally, you know, because uh... yeah, like if I do that in the middle of combat, my players do try to murder. Yeah, them. I would feel that would count, obviously. But mm -hmm. if you do it exactly, yeah, it gets a little fuzzier on the the starters. Uh, but thankfully, uh, none of my players ever ran into that. Okay, yeah. Um... And when I first read your survey, I was also curious about how that worked for sickness. But if it's just combat, then it wouldn't affect. Yeah, no, just combat. Okay. People gotcha. still die of old age. Gotcha. I thought about that. I'm like, no, this city's going to get crowded as fuck real quick. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you mentioned the, the barrier goes up. So is it like a, a visible magical effect that occurs when combat starts? Uh, no, not really. It's uh, it's kind of a short way to describe it. But basically, the way it works in practice is that um, nobody like it's almost like an immediate spare the dying spell. Like uh, as soon as you drop in combat, you are saved from death saves. Okay. So yeah, you're. It would literally be like an immediate like a spare the dying cast. Okay. Uh, and it only happens specifically in the city limits uh, because. At a certain point, the party does get on the wrong side of a gang, um, and they do knock them out and cart them outside the city to try to assassinate them. Oh, okay. But then you'd have to... Well, I guess there are city walls, but there must be ways around that, even if there were mm -hmm. walls. Okay. Um, okay, so that's the, the combat thing. I had another question about the water thing. Um, yes. So at the top of this hill, there's a, a spring, basically, that's producing water over and over again um mm -hmm. is it like enough water for however many people live in the city limits is it enough water for ten thousand people but if there were more people it wouldn't get there how how does how much water is produced 
it is uh it is a significant amount of water uh to the point where uh like i said originally most of the country they're in is scrubland except for Piram and like the surrounding acreage because there is so much excess water um it gets to the point where like water storage is really not a thing at all in Piram because there's just always water flowing through uh so one of the big issues is at one point uh, when the cult takes control, uh, they block off the water. They have the devil actually siphoning the water off. Okay. Uh, so nobody who has bothered to store water at any point before now becomes reliant on the cult who has sole access to it. And where is the devil siphoning it off to? Just someplace magic? Yeah, I assume he's throwing it in some plane somewhere to make it somebody else's problem. Okay, yeah. Doesn't need to be much more than that. Alright. Okay. Someone's having a really bad day. Right. Okay, going back just a bit more to the, the setting stuff. Um, You mentioned resistance to immigration slightly. Was that ever anything that came up during the campaign, or was just that, like a little bit of background? Uh, yeah, there is a little bit. The way I described Piram is that originally um, it was a dwarvish city, so you do still see a lot of dwarven influence, especially um, when talking about like holidays and building structure and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, Piram has been uh, growing in 70 years, basically. It's been 70 years uh, since these blessings first showed up, and in those 70 years, uh, the explosion has been, like, unimaginable. I mean, it was overnight, basically, like, rural Kansas to New York City. Uh, so there's so many different types of people in Piram that it becomes less about, like, uh, your immigrant status or your race status and more, uh, your, like, political and social status. Okay. Who you are and who you know is 100% more important. Okay, gotcha. All right, one more setting question before we get into the, mm -hmm. the cult activity. Um, you mentioned there are other gods outside of the four divines that are more like the actual force that exists in the world. Mm -hmm. um, what are those? Did you come up with your own gods, or are you using the like official D&D gods or something like that? Yeah, I stuck with the pantheon. Um, the way I have it set up in Piram is because, uh, you know, there's so many different types of belief, especially in uh, the D&D &D world, like just looking down the list of different gods you can choose to worship. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's sort of a, you know, free expression, uh, especially in the city of Piram. Uh, but the whole thing there is that they can't show preference, um, which is why the cult originally begins to have problems with the city is because the cult wants to be in charge. Okay. So the city doesn't have a preference for, like, Moradin or a different dwarven god without being the original founding? Exactly, yeah. They don't have a hard preference. As long as you're not, uh, you know, committing murders in the name of one of the gods of destruction, you're good. Okay, gotcha. All right, yeah, let, let's talk about that cult. Control of the water seems pretty mm -hmm. nasty. That's a pretty, like, uh, standard evil villain plot. I think James Bond has used it a couple times. Oh, yeah, right? Uh, the And I kind of buried the lead a little bit because the most fun part is when they uh, originally do take over the city... Uh, the first thing they manage to do is they manage to break the no-killing spell. Ooh, okay. 
Mm -hmm. So uh, this is kind of their, uh, this had become their kind of act to lead up, um, is the cult had spent the entire kind of first section building power and operating behind the scenes, trying to gather enough materials to kind of attempt this coup and break uh, the magic spell. And when they did, uh, it was kind of a fell swoop. Uh, the players were not prepared for it and uh, made some poor choices. And so the governor's manor was taken, the governor was assassinated, and the cult took control of the city. Okay. Yeah, that's that's a lot of stuff. So they've got this powerful demon, I guess, that helps them break mm -hmm. that blessing that prevents death. Um, is it, like, broken forever? Or were your players able to bring it back? Uh, unfortunately, they never got to finish the game. Uh, but they're like, yeah, it was right near the end, too. Uh, but we're going to be bringing it back uh, soon. Two of my original players want to come back and redo it. Okay. But... Uh, as in my in my notes, I have it because I have it all written down here. Um, the plan would be that uh, at this point, the, unless they did something crazy, uh, that gift has been broken forever, and now they need to save the other two before the same thing happens. Gotcha. Um, well, it feels like the other two, the cult, wouldn't want to break them on purpose because that kind of loses their the power that the city has, but they have this evil devil that might uh, trick them into doing it mm -hmm. and part of their goal too is um especially like both with the water and the crops is control mm -hmm. uh because the first thing they do when they take over you know after killing everybody important uh is they block off the city walls and they say you know you can only get rations of food and water from our temples at these times Gotcha. And if you just so happen to join, you get an extra couple of baskets. Well, I'm just saying that if they actually break those other blessings... Then no, they, yeah, that... they would not intend to break it. The devil uh, has his own agenda. Right, right. I will I'll say, I'll tell you a little bit, uh, because we're talking about the devil, yeah. uh, and this is something fun, because one of my big things that I like to do, especially in this story, was I wanted all of my players to have a strong connection to the city. Right. So one of the big things, they either had to be from the city or have a reason to be in the city. Um, and one of my players, uh, he is, was a tiefling noble, um, to this family of human nobles, which had kind of been a uh, scandal from the very beginning. Uh, and it would come to pass eventually throughout the end of it that the reason that they had this devil uh, that they had come into contact it with originally was because of my character or my player character's mother uh, had made the original deal and she had been involved with the cult almost from the very beginning. Oh, okay. What was the player's reaction when that was brought in? Oh, it was, it was, I, it was beautiful. I mean, I loved every moment of interaction uh, between my player character and his parents in that one, uh, because from the very beginning, it was very much like a mom. It's almost like you don't like me, uh, and she says, "Oh, honey, I would never say that to your face." But <laughs> the the energy from the very beginning. Uh, was beautiful with them and so with this like sudden reveal that oh yeah my parents are the bad guys actually especially after decades of telling him like yeah you're the devil you're the monster like 
at one point he has to rescue them um because the cult is trying to burn everyone's house down okay. and as he bursts into their room his dad yells i always knew this would be the day you killed us uh as he's there to rescue them <laughs> so finally being able to turn the tides on them and be like nah F you, mom and dad. It's done. I'm taking this cult out. It was beautiful. That's good. Did you have any other like personal stories for other characters that you were able to bring in? Oh, yeah. Uh, we had one I loved, uh, one of the player characters who's going to be uh, coming into the redo that we do for this one. Mm -hmm. uh, he was playing a city guardsman. Uh, but his whole thing was he was a, uh, I believe they're called shifters. Here he's part uh, werebear. And his whole thing was that um, because of this kind of uh, push against uh, lycanthropy, he was always kind of the lower ranking, like, you know, grunt duty cop uh, who just so happens to stumble upon this conspiracy mm -hmm. that the city guard is actually involved with the cult. Um, uh. And as he kind of starts digging in deeper and deeper, his captain, who has always been on his side and always been rooting for him, tells him, like, hard, drop the case. Like, and it becomes a huge moment between uh, myself and the character because this is like his thing is he will not like he is a detective through and through. He is a man of honor through and through, even if the city doesn't recognize that. Uh, and it comes to a point where he literally becomes like the rogue cop had to had to <laughs> leave the precinct to uncover the crimes. And it became an amazing arc with him. That does sound very fun. It was a great time. The uh, The only problem is he was about to do his big confrontation with his former chief, and that was the fight we, like, stopped at before uh, we could continue it. So you stopped because people moved away, right? Yep. Uh, we moved, uh, myself and two of the players moved to a different state, uh, and then another one uh, graduated from grad school and is now, like, working in a biotech lab and some other stuff. It's like, people got busy. Yeah. So you haven't considered doing, like, a virtual tabletop to finish it up? We did for a little bit, and we did for COVID, uh, because once that started, like, obviously, we went all virtual. Oh, yeah. um, we were on Roll20 for a minute, and I did, I've got most of Pyram actually in Roll20 because we were doing it virtually at the time, but it, it just became one of those things where, like, the schedule never worked out. Which you'd think with eight people, I could get the majority to the table, but right. it, it wasn't happening. Oh, okay, I'm sorry about that. Yeah, it happened. I say especially we did five years of gaming where it was like, if not, we did every week for a while. And then every other week, about halfway through that, like we did lots of games and we'll do more in the future. Yeah, that's another thing I wanted to ask is because you've been doing like I do longer form campaigns. So I've done basically three or four campaigns and I've been playing for 20 years and you've done what you said three before this this is your fourth in five years so yep you're doing much uh, much faster campaigns um, do you feel like you're able to tailor them better to your players because you're doing them faster that way i think so i and i think part of it is um 
the way I write my games is I kind of set them up a little more narratively. And I think part of that is, you know, I have an English degree and that's kind of where my background is. Mm -hmm. So I'll like start writing a campaign and I'll have like, okay, I've got like my strong hook and then I've got a rough idea of like what I want the ending to look like. And obviously, you know, the players through their campaign will shape that. But when I go in, I've already got a rough idea of kind of where the ending is going to be. And so I think it's easier for uh, me to kind of tell that direct story. Um, and it really helps that I've got players who really love to be involved in my world. And so the minute I kind of give them like the basic rundown, they're like, okay, you know, my guy's from this town and he's involved in this and that's why he gets into the story. And so that's like a big help because it makes it even easier for me to kind of weave those character backgrounds into the story. Yeah, yeah, definitely. When you have that type of buy-in from your players, it can be much easier for that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, anything else you want to talk about? I'm actually, I'm like, part of my thing is like, I just want to talk about all my games. I like, cause I'm, um, I'm actually running another game right now, uh, oh, yeah? which is barely D and D at all. Uh, because that one, it's like a time and space jumper adventure. Oh, I'm actually uh, thinking about doing one of those for my next campaign. I highly recommend it. Highly, highly recommend it. Uh, the way I've got it set up is I've got four players at my table there, and I call it my gold game, uh, literally, because they're four very experienced players uh, who I specifically like a lot, uh, mm -hmm. and I brought them in on this. And the way it works is they're all from different realities, uh, and they just happen to fall in together to defeat a you know galaxy-ending threat. Uh, and part of the fun part, too, is that um, two of the characters, like, one is from a dystopian future, and the other one is from the dystopian future of that dystopian future. <laughs> all right. Also, I have, I have two space cowboys somehow. <laughs> yeah, all right. That's, of course, you do. Yeah, right. Uh, but no, Pyrrhum, uh, it's an amazing game that I love a lot. Uh, I've got literally piles of stuff i'm like i don't want to talk about it too much but i did make up a whole sheet of fantasy drugs for the players to do oh great. uh yeah just because uh and part of it too is uh oh i didn't even mention the tunnels oh there are tunnels yes uh there are extensive tunnels uh, because one of the things is, as a former mining town, um, right. there are series of old shafts and mine tunnels and things like that. And um, at this point, it is uh, on the books illegal to enter them because uh, old mine shafts are not safe. They collapse and people die in them. Uh, also, they're, you know, full of beasts and monsters, depending on how far down you go. Right. Uh, but this labyrinth, uh, it connects into the sewers at certain points, and it basically means you can make it from one end of the city to the other entirely underground. So uh, there's a lot of crime that goes down on down there. Okay. Um so is there any actual mining that's still happening in the town, or is that kind of like died out in the face of all these other industries taking advantage of the free resources? 
right? Uh, there is very little actual mining. Uh, part of it is because uh, the catalyte mines were dried up. There are some still remaining, um, which is very exciting because I love saying the city is built on explosives. Uh, so uh, there, but there is also uh, kind of the big industry in the area, which is the Hammerhide Silver Refinery. Um, and this one is fun because I love my zany NPCs. Uh, all of my dwarves have, like, country accents because I can't do a Scottish accent. Okay. Uh, so he is a good old country boy who owns uh, the silver refinery. And the way it works here is kind of his edge is that um, he's got his situation at the edge of the warehouse district. Uh, but instead of, like being near a mine he's just got a teleporter so he will send his workers like magically to the mines every day uh so they can get like the extra dangerous or extra far out mines and bring the silver back in to be processed there gotcha uh, and that's where a ton of the extra like if you don't work at the arena or something like that uh chances are you work at the silver refinery I feel like I also have to mention for my players, because it's their favorite spot, I have to give a shout-out to the Bad Zoo, uh, which is another feature of the town. Yes. Uh, so, originally, it was just the zoo, uh, but then a better zoo showed up, and they had to change their name. Uh, the Bad Zoo features all sorts of fun little creatures. You've got some rust monsters, some oozes, there's an old <laughs> hellhound that's there. Um, it's literally just a tiny, shitty zoo full of, like, weird and kind of ugly monsters, and the guy who owns it loves them so much. I don't know, Rust Monster sounds like a pretty cool zoo. You just... It's fun, yeah. They, have to keep uh, it in a wooden cage. Their first mission... <laughs> the first mission is actually the Rust Monsters escape, um, and the players have to go, like, hunt them down and tranquilize them to bring them back to the zoo. Oh, that's fun. Well, speaking of the explosive stuff that is all over the town, did you use that for anything else besides dynamite? Because I feel like, you know, once you have explosives, you can figure out lots of other, like, guns, grenades, that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. I, uh... <laughs> So I had, uh, up until this game, put an explicit ban on explosives uh, because one of my player characters really, really, really wanted to solve all of his problems with explosives. Uh, so this was the first time I let him loose in the city. Yeah, how'd that go? <laughs> uh, it, was, it was a good time. Um, I like I said, there was the situation where uh, at one point the cult was trying to burn everybody house, everybody's houses down. Uh, there was also comes a time uh, in the arena uh, because with uh, when the cult takes over, the arena, which has been used for combat, is basically seized by them, um, and they turn it into basically a giant like mega temple. Okay. Um, but Frizz, the owner, being an insane person, uh, lets the party know that when he had the arena built, uh, he had the catalyte explosives set underneath the arena in case he ever needed to blow it up for any reason. <laughs> so, a level uh, of paranoia of that is like yeah i put a bunch of bombs in my house in case anyone ever took like i invaded just in case, you know yeah 
I'm a, and uh, the best part is uh, he he's got a terrible character voice, which I'm sure many of my DMs will uh, understand about. In the fact that like it's very funny, but it hurts a lot to do. So he can only do like special cameos. Oh uh, yes, I was doing one of those for my last um, my last session, where it was a character that hadn't spoken in like 15 years or something like that. Um, I'm trying to get that much like. My throat hurts from talking so much. Right, you got to get the rust on it, and yeah. that's um, that's very much Frizz. He's like, um, "What's up?" And yelling like that a hundred times is very fun. Yep. Uh, but yeah, no, he uh, part of their mission becomes they have to sneak in under the nose of the cult and um, get the remote detonator so that they can blow up the arena. Oh, of course. <laughs> Uh, that became an extra fun one because at one point one of the players got caught and had to um, lie his way into getting initiated into the cult. Oh, okay. Uh, which was going to be like, it was going to be one of those great things to come up later uh, when he gets a little mind control on him. Uh, but unfortunately, I never got to use it. Oh. <laughs> right? That's always the tragedy. But I'm very excited. Like I said, I'm going to be running this game again for my two other play, my two returning players, and then a handful of new players. And uh, so I'm excited to see them uh, make many of the same mistakes. Okay. Yeah, that's definitely cool to be able to go back and finish it. Um, so it's going to be mostly new characters, I guess, is the idea there. Likely that's the plan. Like, uh, I have offered it to my old uh, my old players that if they wanted to return their characters, they definitely can. Uh, but I think one of the fun things about Pyram is that they have a lot of options depending on where they want to go. And uh, my one player who is playing the detective, he is notorious for, like, halfway through the game deciding he wants to play a new character and switching him out. Uh, he is also the one I always accidentally kill. Uh, because in my games, like, PC death is definitely an option. Like, uh, I'm not out of my way to be mean about it, but, you know, my character, my, uh, villains are tough, and they are trying to kill people. Um, and it just so happens that this player always, like, dies in a liquid, uh, we're realizing. Like, at one point, he drowned in the mud, um, and then at another point, he fell into a lava pit, and then at a third point, he was killed by a tsunami of hot soda. Uh, and that's how all three of his characters have died. Gotta do acid next. Yeah, right? We're waiting for it. There, he almost took uh, the fall into a pit path in one of their last games. And it was literally, he did a 50-50 roll on whether he was going to take the path that would kill him or not. Uh, not knowing it was the path that would kill him. And he just managed to avoid it. I mean, at some point, you just have to recognize the problem and start playing, like, a aquatic character or something like that. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, that sounds fun. Like, having that kind yeah. of accident that happens that ends up being, like, a in inside joke. Oh, yeah. And I don't mean to do it. It just keeps happening. So now, anytime he's near a body of water, like, of course, they got a joke about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but no, I, I love running D&D, &D and... um. I'm like I am excited to actually try to rerun Pyram, uh, because one of the games I'm running currently is actually a rerun. Uh, I actually call it my I refer to it as my baby's game 
uh, because I feel like it is a perfect like introduction to D and D game the way I have it set up. Yeah. And I originally it was the first campaign I ever ran for my like first five year table, and now I am running it again for a whole new table of brand new players. That's cool. Right. I like. I just. I love. I love D and D. Honestly, that's like my. That's always been my thing, and I don't know like. I don't know what it is that originally, like, you know, bit me about it, but it's one of those things where I can see myself doing it. Like, 30 years from now, I'm still going to have, like, my Docs app up, like, writing down notes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's just... Because you can do so many different things with role-playing. Like, you can... No. Yeah, you get so much of your own creativity to include, and then other people get to add on to it. It's a really great experience. Right, everyone, we all get to tell the story together. And that's like one of the things I tell my players, like session zero, it's always like my goal is always I want us to tell a really cool story and I want everyone to always leave the table feeling like they got to do something great. Yeah. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to talk about? Uh, I think that might be about it for me. I will highly recommend to do your time and space jumper game. Um, I'm loving mine right now, and I don't think you'll be disappointed. Yes, I definitely will. It's more just a question of when it's my turn to DM again, because my, my yeah, players right? do switch off a little bit with me. <laughs> See, I wish. I gotta, I'm like, we're starting to get everybody into the rotation now. We're working on them. <laughs> yeah. Um. Well, typically, at the end of the podcast, I ask people if they have any advice for other DMs. I feel like you've already given out a lot is there anything else you wanted to say on that note yeah i uh i think my big thing for dms is like love your players man like if you have a group of people who are passionate about it uh like you can go anywhere and do anything like having a great table is like i think part of the reason why i've been doing it for so long is it's a group of like i'm playing with a group of really good friends and a group of people that like I really like love and care about and care about me and just starting from there uh you tell amazing stories yeah all right well uh thanks for coming on the show Garrett it was great having you here thanks for having me and I'm uh I'm really excited to see the next episode I'm gonna be listening in close yeah thanks <laughs>